welcome to the Top Order podcast. This week in cricket, games coming thick and fast. Test World Championship coming very, very soon. We're going to talk England, New Zealand. There's lots to unpick. Bumble's comments, Ollie Robinson, Devon Conway and me welching on a whiskey bet. We've got Sri Lanka contracts and we've also got the expansion of global ICC events all coming up on a wet and windy evening here in Auckland. Stay tuned. So, of course, we're going to talk England, New Zealand at the Home of Cricket Lords um, later in the podcast. A couple of things coming up in cricket news around the world, though. So, Raj, let's talk about Sri Lanka contracts. We, we spoke with uh, Ken Rutherford, who said that the New Zealand team of the 80s um, famously would just sign uh, whatever Richard Hadley signed as a tour contract. Maybe the Sri Lankan board need to get paddles across on a plane and uh, see if he can uh, vet the uh, vet the agreement. Yeah, very interesting situation there. I don't think it's the same as that. But uh, yeah, I guess we have to look at a little bit of history here with this one. So over the last few tours, few years, the Sri Lankan team have been signing a, a tour contract, tour by tour. Uh, a new annual you know, payment scheme has been put in place, which is heavily based around performance. And uh, the players are not happy with it. So... So why why have they been doing it tour by tour rather than you know their, just their annual contract that they get every year and and they're just on the tours because that's what you do? That's a good answer, a good question. I don't have the answer to that, yep. but I would suggest it has something to do with with COVID, the disruption to cricket, mm-hmm. and also they've just put in a, like Tom Moody's gone there, national director of cricket. They've just sort of reformed how they're doing cricket in in Sri Lanka. So I guess it's something to do with that without actually having the answer for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what this does is it puts the, there's an English tour, so Sri Lanka is going to England. It puts that in a bit of jeopardy, but I just read an article saying that the players have said they will still go. So they're like, we're not going to sign this contract, but we will still go. So I don't know how that's going to work, but uh, yeah, watch this space. Yeah, so I think it comes down to them resisting the transparency of the contracts and um, talking about whether or not the senior players are particularly well um, paid for uh, yeah for what they bring I guess to Sri Lanka cricket but you would think that the other boards are going to get involved so you, you would think the ECB would be very keen to maybe lend some mediation um, and, and see if they can kind of grease the skids a little bit because I think you know it's really important that we're obviously just seeing plenty of cricket on TV at the moment isn't it? Yeah, one thing I think that they're going to balk at is the fact that they're 35% less than they were last year and obviously the finances of COVID have got a lot to do with that prior to that their contracts went up and now they've gone back down again. So I imagine that's what has got the players a little bit under fire. The other one, just before you jump in, Raj, the other one that's got me is they rate the players like A through D, like you're getting a high school report card. <laughs> like that's fine for transparency, but like if you're on a, like a Sri Lankan contract and you're a D plus player, like that's not going to do a lot for your confidence or your mental health, right? So I, I think there's better ways. Like you can be transparent, but there's got to be better ways of doing that than giving you know platinum, gold, and silver. Yeah, than giving you know guys a, a category A and a category D. Um, you know, if I'm if I'm there's one you know, Kush, Kush, Koshal Silver is on the bottom category and he's rated D. And if I'm him, I'm like, well, well, hang on. At least give me a pass mark. Like, don't give me a D. I'll at least a C minus, please. Come on. Like, if I get extra credit if I go to more trainings? I don't know. It just seems... Well, that is actually part of that criteria. One of them is around fitness, isn't it, I think, mm. in terms of the way that they've ranked the, the players. So it's based on performance. It's based on leadership qualities. It's based on fitness. And I think there was a fourth category in there as well. Maybe drinking ability. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I'd like to see the um, the tiering system for this podcast. We might have to do that one. Um, oh, I'm 100% one. on a D at the moment. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, I guess. <laughs> I definitely don't. <laughs> I definitely don't want to see that. I know peer review. That's for sure. I, I guess the the other thing, and I kind of support this with the Shrunken Cricket Board, is that they're paying based on winning. You know, you you just like we were talking about in the West Indies, where they're kind of going through a little bit of reform as well and changing the direction. If you wanna, if you wanna improve or you wanna you wanna get better, you've got to keep improving. You've got to keep changing. You've got to keep. Oh, what is? I want to use the word mutate, but that's not the right word. You've got to keep Evolve. evolving. There, there we go. go. You've got to keep evolving. Uh, and I guess there is a little bit of unfairness there. I think I, I was looking at you know what they're going to get paid. I think it's like one hundred and fifty thousand if they beat like the top one of the top two teams in the world, which you know is probably a little bit unrealistic mm. at this stage. But uh, yeah, I mean, I support the whole get paid if you win sort of thing. Mm. Hang on a second. Upul Taranga and Daruluan Pereira are on a B, but their contract value, their base salary and their contract value is worth more than Suranga Lakmal, who's got an A. Who was the second one, Uh Daruluan Pereira. How does that work? That can't work. That can't possibly be right. This article must be wrong. Because there's no way you can get an A and get less money than a guy who's got a B, surely. Well, I, I don't know. You can you can go into that. I, I think it's uh, bizarre. It doesn't what, make any sense. What? Like I'm not surprised they're upset about it. It doesn't make any <laughs> sense. I've read it for two seconds, and the guys who've got C's and the guys who've got D's have got the same money, except for half of the D's have got less money than the other half of the guys who've got D's. Well, it makes no sense, well, none whatsoever. While your brain is is blowing up over there, I think it, probably the the bigger point for me out of all this is the the alarming number of nations and teams that are that are having these kind of disputes because. You see someone like Faf Duplessis, I think, has come out recently and said, you know, that these 20 leagues are, are a real danger for international cricket, which is obviously something people have been saying for a while. But when you get someone of his standing coming out and saying that kind of stuff, and then you get all these contract negotiations, and yeah, it's it's just worrying. And I mean, you know, we're, we're going into World Test Championships, we're going to talk about all the different ICC tournaments that are coming up. And if those marquee players are just suddenly going, oh, well, I'd just rather play three IPLs a year, then that's what's going to happen and, and you're going to miss out on the best players playing in those big tournaments. Yeah, look, absolutely. Let's come on to those ICC expansion, ev- or not expansion events, but expansion of global events. If that article from Baldy makes your eyes and brain hurt, this schedule certainly makes your brain hurt as well. Raj, I'm coming to you to explain it because, to be honest, you've put it in the planning document. So um, I, over to you, big fella. Is it a planning document? <laughs> Um, so, so basically, the the uh, the ICC has re- released a, a schedule of events up until twenty thirty one. So that in, it's inclusive of twenty twenty four to twenty thirty one. The main sort of things we want to talk about is uh, expanded World Cup one day one day fifty over World Cup with fourteen teams, a expanded twenty twenty World Cup with twenty teams, and eight man Champions Trophy event. Being re eight uh, team champions trophy eight team men's champions okay. trophy yeah uh, just put back inserted into that cycle so that'll be every two years opposing the the men's world cup fifty every over. four years sorry uh, that that's fifty over yeah. yes yeah look I mean and what it, and what it really means is that we've got pretty much a, a tournament a year or, or some kind of thing that every nation is you know the the eight the eight test playing nations at least. Uh, or nine test playing nations now, there's, there's going to be at least eight or nine sides vying for a 10, you know, 10 test playing nations. It just keeps adding up. But so the, we get 11 anyway. 11 <laughs> in the room anyway. 
I'll have 11, please. <laughs> Whatever it is, there's going to be a lot of tournaments now. Every single year, you're going to be playing for something, I guess, that matters in, in the cycle. And we always talk about, particularly from New Zealand point of view, we're always talking about building often towards that next limited overs cycle. And we've talked a bit about how the, te- the World Test Championship now gives us an opportunity to kind of build towards something test-wise. I think the interesting thing for me is that they haven't decided to change that World Test Championship. We're thinking about two years and how we've talked about a lot of the, the issues that have been brought up with this, how you know, you end up playing six series, I think it is, where you play three home and three away, and it means that you don't play some of those teams and, and whether they're going to put, start putting in the Irelands and Afghanistan and, and those other teams into that cycle, it's going to make it even more difficult, I guess, to to really see the best test nations in that tournament every single year. So, uh, yeah, interesting that they've kind of gone that far out to 2031 and haven't really addressed any of the concerns that not just us, but but people all around the world and, and even the players have mentioned about this tournament. So what do you guys make of, um, specifically talking about the 50-over World Cup here, everyone was very happy when it dropped down to a, a smaller format, everybody plays everybody. That probably won't be happening with this 14-team No, it's a seven, seven, two pools of seven and uh, back to the Super 6 formats that we've had in the past. So what are your, your thoughts on that and the quality that we'll see? Well, I think for the growth of cricket, it's good to have more teams in that World Cup. I think everyone agrees that more teams at the World Cup mean a, mean a growth for cricket generally. The challenge, of course, is that I think the best format for a World Cup is the one where everyone plays each other once and then you have a top four, semi-finals and final. That's, that's probably the best format for the teams that are at the World Cup and it's the, probably the best format to decide the winner. The challenge, though is that that 10-team World Cup is pretty exclusive and doesn't give the opportunity for Ireland necessarily or the Netherlands or those some, some of those emerging nations to participate at the World Cup and learn from that experience and get the funding that goes with that mm. to help grow their cricket programs. That's the real downside for those teams not playing in a 10-team World Cup. Yeah, it's a really difficult one because the, the participation piece and growth of the game is really important but maybe it's because we've got a little bit of recency bias on this um and then coupled with the fact that all of us grew up in the early 90s what you know that was probably the first memory that we had of a of a world tournament certainly i I don't think any of you guys are going to remember 1987 uh, for, for example um i just about do but um i think we look at that 92 world cup and the 2019 and we go format was brilliant outcome of the tournament was brilliant was that because of the format? Um, and I've got to say, I think I, I agree with Baldy. Uh, that really, really works. I think the thing that gets lost on this when we talk about participation is when we look at a football FIFA World Cup, there are many more nations that play football and then there's still a qualifying process over the course of the two years leading up to the tournament for those teams to get into that, what is it, 64-team uh, tournament or 32-team tournament. Mm. So... Look, I I think they they could if they wanted to have that sort of same uh, yeah same format um, and make it that ten, nine or ten team f- format that I think would work really really well. The challenge though with that is that we've already had that incredibly complex qualifying. Remember the the graph oh, we still, had to it's draw still going. that to try and figure out how to get to the World Cup, mm. and it was like teams playing tournaments, and then you know there was a secret decoder ring involved, and there was a <laughs> goblin under a bridge that asked you three questions, and if you got them right, you got to go to the next round, and then he gave you a key, and then you had to take that to the home of cricket, and then un- that unlocked a, like a, a little 
vault thing, and then you got like the invitation I'm to sure play. I'm sure you got a cup of tea now. Yeah. <laughs> but ranting aside, that teams that go through that process don't get money out of that. That is a financial sinkhole for those teams to have to go through that process. They don't make money trying to qualify for the World Cup. They make money by being at the World Cup. So unless that changes, nothing is going to help those teams grow cricket financially because the only way those teams grow is with more money and then more money gets you better coaches and better systems and better grassroots support and that's what help grow, helps grow cricket in that country. So I totally get that there should be more prestige involved in the qualifying tournament and maybe having the big names play in the qualifying tournament might help that. But at the moment, that qualifying tournament is just a financial sinkhole for most of those developing nations and that doesn't really help them i do i do uh, you know taking that point a bit further i do like the point that there's now tw- going to be 20 teams in the the t20 world cup and because that's maybe where we need to get the participation started yeah i feel like that's the or natural the place yep. that that's the natural yep. place to uh you know build the game i think and and i think even when maybe when we talked to shane deets i think he said that that at a, at a t20 world cup and and at the t20 level it gives you know it, it gives an opportunity for some of the sides that you know, may not have the infrastructure to just come in, play a really good 2020 game and, and kind of upset some of those sides. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I think that's that's where we can really see the development of the game and then kind of expanding yourself into 50 overs. Yeah, that's fair enough. And for those people who do who do still maintain that quality aspect, the ICC's got that covered as well with the eight-man champions trophy, which I think I think that's the last uh, you know tournament we won in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. In 2001? Yeah, 2000, 2001, yeah. Nairobi. I think uh, Nairobi. Yep. Ken scored yep. 100 to win it. Yep. Yeah, look, a really good tournament. I, and I guess what we'll see from the uh, the teams with what is a really, really packed schedule is how much emphasis is placed on that tournament when it comes up again. Um, you know, certainly remember the quality of that Champions Trophy. Um, I think England, when England lost in the final to uh, West Indies and then actually lost in the final to West Indies again, I think, um, in, the, in the following instalment of it as well. So... Yeah, we'll see that. What do we think about the the World Test Championship um, in terms of them not really looking at changing the format? Is that because we've had this sort of COVID situation that we've not really seen it play out the way that we would want? Um, Is it just too difficult? How much interest is going to be on that um, going forward? I mean, you know, how excited are you guys about the fact you're in the final of this one in a couple of weeks' time? Uh, I'm relatively excited about this one. I think it's been good, and I, I agree that... It's it's sort of lifted the level of like I've been much more interested not just because we're, we're on the podcast and talking about all these series all the time but I've been much more interested in I guess what's going on in other parts of the world because you, they're relevant to what you're doing and and what your t- what your team is doing so yeah I, I like it that way I, I would have liked to see them push it out to three years so that they could all you know everyone play everyone I think in in the same way that you, you mentioned there Baldy with the cricket World Cup. I think it's the same thing with the, the the Test Championship that you want to see at least like everyone play nearly everyone or you know six six series just doesn't seem like quite enough and you know I mean we we talked to the guys yesterday um, we did a bit of a preview with the Gully Cricket from um, and Bouncy Wicket podcast and and you know they they ran through in doing that we ran through each team India's path to the final and New Zealand's path to the final. And, you know, you can see kind of the glaring gaps when when you do that and you see, you know, New Zealand's series. And, and we, you know, we played Australia away, we played India at home. And then the other teams are all teams that you'd sort of expect us to, to win. And, you know, on when, when you run through it like that, you can kind of see the detractors that, that say, oh, well, New Zealand shouldn't be in this final. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. But, 
you're always going to have those kind of comments when you have a World Test Championship that doesn't cover all the ground. I think the thing that's glaringly obvious to me when I have a look at that schedule is that the World Test Championship is the only tournament that's on a two-year cycle. All those other tournaments, if I'm not wrong, Raj, are on a four-year cycle, um, and they all line the T21 up. T21 maybe is two-year one. Oh, is the T21 every two years yeah. as well? Okay. Yeah. Well, okay, so the T21's every two years. You've got the, the one-day cricketers every four years, but they're kind of offsetting each other with Champions Trophy and the and the ODI World Cup. Okay. I, I think there would be more prestige in that World Test Championship final if it was every three or four years. Mm. And you had to build to something like the Football World Cup is, and there's a road to that. And you're like, okay, we're, we're 12 months out and we've still got a chance to get to the World Test Championship final. I think that would give it more prestige. I think it's going to lose something if it's every couple of years. Yeah, I mean, when we sort of started the podcast, you know, it was almost at the same time, I think, as the World Test Championship and we, we had a lot of conversations around it. But it was almost a fait accompli as to who was in the final within a year of the cycle starting um, because of the way that um, things were going to work. And, you know, England needed to go to India and win 4-0 in India, which is just never going to happen to even have any chance of getting there. Um, and then you come back to ju just some of the real basic stuff. And this is absolutely not um, sour grapes in, in any way, shape or form. But New Zealand have played 11 games to get into the final, whereas India have played, I think, 17 or 18 games. England have played 20-odd games. Australia have pl probably played close to 20 games. So there's a bit of yeah, a... Dis I think we played 14 or something okay. like that, yeah. Yeah, so there's a di real discrepancy in terms of, yeah. you know, even the major the major nations, um, and we can say that. Um, and then when you go further down the list, it, you know, there's some that are still in single figures in terms of games that have actually um, played a part in getting uh, getting to that. I think we've crapped on long enough about this, haven't we? No, we've got one more point. One more point. I guess it's to your, your point, Stu, around the, the three-year cycle. I think it, it's hard to draw conclusions out of... Out of this cycle that we're just going through because yeah, of how point. disruptive yeah. it's been. But I think at the end of the day, what's been a real success is that it has created some excitement and interest in test cricket, which is what they're after. So mm. that's a big tick for them in, in, in that regard. I, I think I think that it's been a success. I mean, we were you mentioned when we first started this, we were making a joke out of this we World Test Championship. Mm. And now we've been we've been glued to it for the last six six to twelve months seeing who will get there. But uh, no, that was my point, Binksy. No worries. Well, look, we'll be back after the break to talk about the lead-up to the World Test Championship final, um, and that's New Zealand series um, in England going on at the moment. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the pod. Let's talk England, New Zealand, home of cricket. 6,000 fans in at Lords, certainly better than the piped-in crowd noise that we've been used to over the last uh, couple of years. We've got to start, haven't we, with uh, Devon Conway? The million dollar man. Well, yeah, geez. I mean, Baldy, I think you said on the last, you threw it to us and saying, you know, does he open in, in this series on the, the last time we chatted? Well, he answered that pretty emphatically with, uh, what Pre is it that... Pretty sure Ross said that Will Young should have opened the batting. No, Raj said that Will Young, I would have picked Will Young, but I think that... Uh, I, think, yeah. I, I think we give Raj credit. I yeah. think he said Conway should yeah. be in the side. And, and, le and let's not, uh, you know, mess things up by just talking about... Our own poor selection process and uh, and our poor yeah, predictions. Daryl Mitchell was missing as well from that starting lineup. Yeah, well, we can get to him because Colin de Gronholm and Mitchell Santner didn't get very many runs or wickets. But anyway, Conway, let's stick with him because he was just unbelievable, wasn't he? I mean, it looked like it, it was funny listening to the commentators because they obviously hadn't seen a huge amount of him, which is fair enough. They, they'd not expected to necessarily see a huge amount of him. And it, sort of after 
maybe half an hour of just watching him betting, they would just keep saying how assured he looked, how he just looked so in control. And, and yeah, they just, as the day went on, they just talked about him more and more and more. And, and you could just see kind of everything we as New Zealand fans have been seeing every time he stepped up at any level. I mean, you know, Binksy, you said when we talked about him playing in the series, we were kind of like, it's a different beast going and playing test cricket against Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad with the Duke's ball. And he just made it look easy. And mm. yeah, I mean, you know, our innings, even New Zealand's innings to get to 378, you take out his score and, and suddenly there were actually some, some concerning signs, I think, but you know, what he did was just tremendous. Yeah, he was fantastic, Devin Conway, and he started to run out of partners towards the end there. If it wasn't for Neil Wagner's performance towards the back end of the innings with a swashbuckling 25 to stay with Devin Conway and get him to the double ton, it would have looked pretty dire for New Zealand. So there are some some concerns that we'll get to when we talk about them generally. But Devin Conway didn't give a chance, I don't think, in his double ton. He looked a little bit uncertain early on against, I think it was Wood that was giving him some short stuff and, and looked unsettling. But you know, he has the ability to do that because he's doing it at 90, 90 plus miles an hour, Mark Wood. So, you know, he one or two that we might have sort of, you know, had to tuck around the corner and looked a little bit unsure as to whether or play or leave. But he sorted that out by kind of like lunchtime on day one. He had kind of figured out how to play that. And then, you know, he would, he looked assured. And even the ones that he was ducking and he was able to hit the ball for, for a pull shot, even ducking out of the way of it. So he, he just couldn't miss Devin Conway. Yeah, look, for, for me, his method just looked absolutely amazing. And I probably slightly came to the point with the, the Wood comment. He got hit by Wood, and then the very next ball, Wood pitches up, and he, and he was on the front foot. He wasn't hanging back and hit probably, a, if Neil Wagner hadn't hit that amazing six over um, extra cover, it would have been probably shot of the game for me, that drive down the ground after being pinned in the, yeah, I think pinned in the arm, wasn't he, as he was sort of taking a... Um, evasive action but yeah you, you really can't give him enough plaudits I guess that you know the counterpoint would be England have seen a little bit of him at the crease now and um, they've probably got a little bit of data I don't know what that data is going to tell them because um, you know w- what's the plan you run him out for 200 like yeah uh, <laughs> well, take, nine, take nine wickets at the other end at the moment um, but yeah look, absolutely fantastic and you know we had the privilege of seeing him play uh, some international cricket here um, in the New Zealand summer across uh, the white ball formats and you know look the goods in those and, and certainly uh, transferred that into the red ball game as well yeah well, my favorite part actually of, of that 200 watching him bat was and I guess actually it goes back to how he's played as, as a white ball cricketer as well is just how he was playing or playing through different gears you saw when he was there early on he was focused more the emphasis was on placing the ball in the right spots if it went for four that's great but it was more about getting the ball into the right spot running hard between the wickets which I thought New Zealand did really well all of them uh, in, in that first innings uh, obviously the uh, last wicket uh, accepted there <laughs> but um, no I, I really liked the way that, that Conway batted he batted completely different to how he bats in a one day game and he could could go up to that level, like example, when he got his hundred, he got to one hundred and thirty pretty quickly. Uh, at the by the end of the day, so I really like the way he batted. I think he's got a great future. I'd like to see him batting probably a little bit further down the order. Uh, that's not a secret of mine. I don't think that opening is where he should be batting, uh, as evidence in the second. What did he get in the second innings? Twenty odd. Mm. Twenty. Um, yeah. So I, I'd rather see him doing that. So he's averaging one hundred and twenty-five as an opener. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's pretty good. Pretty. Yeah. What's Rory Burns averaging this season? Uh, this uh, well, well, test season. Let, let's um, co- let's come on to that a little bit later because we're still not paying out. So just <laughs> moving on from Devon Conway, just probably the other performances. I I thought in that first innings, Henry Nichols' innings was really really important. Mm. And if you actually have a look at his numbers now as a Test batsman, 
they're actually looking pretty good. I think he's got 700s through 38 games, mm. averaging in the mid-40s. Uh, he's really trying to put a, a, a real career together. Yeah, well, I mean, we talked about him right at the start of the New Zealand summer saying he's the one that's under pressure the most. And, and since since then, I know he had a, you know, he, he had a bit of luck in the New Zealand summer, but the thing is that he, he cashed in on that luck and he scored big hundreds and then he scored 50s, he scored another 50 now. And yeah, he looked really assured and, and that partnership kind of put New Zealand in that position where they were going to be in a good position even despite that collapse. They were in a position where they've got kind of enough runs on the board and him and Conway just kind of took the game took the game away from England a bit in that at the back end of that first day. Yeah, because New Zealand opened the door a couple of times for England during that bad innings, you know, getting Kane and, and Ross out for less than 15 each, huge for, for England, and they would have felt like going into the Test match. If we can get Kane and Ross under 20, we're a big chance of bowling at, out New Zealand for 270, you know. So that partnership between Conway and Nichols, 150 partnership, huge in the context of that first innings. The rest of the New Zealand order probably have to go into the room of mirrors a little bit and have a bit of a look at themselves because other than Nichols and Wagner, I think they were pretty poor. You mentioned de Gronholm and Santner at the top here, didn't get many runs. The dismissals were soft. It's not just that they were beaten and were dismissed. Santner's dismissal was really soft, and he'll expect better of himself. De Gronholm was beaten by one that kind of nipped back a little bit and he was pinned LBW, but those guys set higher standards for themselves than than they showed in that first test. And I think they've probably got a bit of work to do going into that second test and certainly coming into the World Test Championship final because New Zealand can't afford a collapse like that against India. I do think that the the, the two sort of big hundreds are, are a bit deceptive. I feel that the pitch wasn't actually that easy to bat on no, uh, overall. And I think that the 100 by Conway and that brilliant 100 from Rory Burns where um, they just they made it look a lot easier than I think it actually was. Yeah, so. it was tough. To, it was tough to get in on that wicket, and you saw that you either had to swashbuckle or you had to really knuckle down to get a start, a start. And there was an opportunity there for the bowlers' early doors. But yeah, I think that there will be a couple of New Zealand players a little bit disappointed with their batting effort. On that front, Raj, I mean, how concerned are we with Ross Taylor? I mean, I, the Sky Sport team. I, I actually really enjoyed um, that Sky Sport cover. Was you know the UK Sky coverage? I thought that was. It was really nice. I just feel like they what they did really well was actually used silence, uh, which is something I don't know. It, it just struck me last last night when I was listening that that pretty much all the things that they're doing are, are adding value. They're not just kind of talking you through the stuff. You guys might not share the same views, but they did a very good piece on making it very clear about the difficulties that Ross Taylor's having at the moment. Falling over. Anyone that watched the game would have seen would have seen that in in New Zealand here. And I mean, the longer he's batted in these last few games, it, it started to make me a bit worried. I, you know, I want him to be there. I, I trust that he's had a long, long career for New Zealand. But when, when they're at, when they really lined him up and they showed how where Kane Williamson's hitting the ball and where Ross Taylor's hitting the ball in their head positions, and you just see how he's getting out and how basically whenever the ball is on the stumps, I think they said yesterday when the ball's been on the stumps. There's some sort of stat that Ross Taylor averages about five uh, to balls bowled on the stumps in the last 18 months or, or however long it was. And, yeah, I'm just a bit worried about his position in the side and how much longer he has at the test game if he doesn't start getting runs pretty soon. Yeah, I think the, the numbers are starting to look pretty grim. I think we talked about his last 31 innings prior to this, having scored very few 50s or going past 50. So it's not, not looking not looking great from that numbers point of view. I, I still think that he is in our top 
uh, top top batsman, uh, top five, top six batsman in the country. But this is where I, I sort of made that point where is, is now the time that we start building this order around Devin Conway and Kane Williamson mm. for the next cycle. Mm. Uh, I think that's sort of where we've got to be looking now. Uh, and, and, and I don't know what that means for, for the rest of the order, to, to be honest with you. Before we move on to the England performance, can we just give a shout-out to Tim Southey, six foot, getting him on the honours board again at Lords. He was the best, probably the best bowler uh, in that in New Zealand attack against England, I thought. He was outstanding again and has been for the last couple of years. I guess ever since we gave him a bit of a serve, or it might have been <laughs> me, actually, that gave him a bit no, of a I serve, think, he's I been outstanding. I'll put my hand up. He, I he was, was awesome. I was writing him off. I thought that he was on the decline, and, and now he's... You know, I saw a stat that in the last... In 20 tests... Since the start of 2018, he's got 99 wickets at 21.8. It, it's better than Anderson. It's it's it, it's just staggering. I mean, it, he's just been such a strong performer. And, and I think what he's added is that you used to basically think Tim Southey, his opening spell is going to be really good. And then as soon as that opening, that new ball is kind of done, he's not really that useful for us until, you know, the, the next second new ball. ball. Yeah. But now it feels like he can come back in a second spell and really do some damage. And did that to dismiss Rory Burns uh, when Rory Burns was on 132. Yeah, and look, I guess you made the comparison with Anderson there, and that's pretty similar to um, how a lot of people would have talked about Jimmy Anderson. He's a new ball bowler. I mean, you're not a new ball bowler if you can take 600 tests, you know, just a new ball bowler if you've taken 600 test wickets. And um, Saudi's record... um, certainly in the last couple of years, is comparable to that absolute class act. Yes, definitely. I think that pitch really suited him also. We talked about it being decent for the bowlers. It was one where if you just put the ball in the right area, the ball and the wicket are going to do the job for you. Mm. Uh, And, you know, guys like Neil Wagner and stuff were probably a little bit blunted from that perspective. Uh, But, uh, yeah, I think think he's done really well. I think it was the um, Sri Lanka tour Mm. when Neil Wagner got left out for, I think it was the first test, and Saudi took five for that's when he's really started to to kick on. So, you know, he's doing a great job. On to to England now. I mean, Raj, you've been dying to talk about Rory Burns this whole time. Binksy will obviously have some thoughts, but why don't you just tell us about Rory Burns? Oh, I thought it was a great innings. I saw I saw a lot of it. I saw I saw pretty much all of it. I think it was a, a really good innings, a patient innings. Uh, unfortunately, he did, you know, unfortunately for us, I guess, that uh, Santana didn't get him out stumped yeah, yeah. um, uh, with uh, Watling assisting him there. But I thought he looked really good. He, he looked the most assured out of any of the, the batsmen in that first innings. I have to admit I did not see... The second innings, but Sibley looked like he played well. Um, but yeah, I think he, I think he looked really good. His, it goes back to and they, they did a side by side with him and Sibley during that during that first innings where he scored runs. Just the balance that he's got mm. on contact with the ball is, is really incredible for a guy who looks like that. It, it's incredible because his, his, there's so much that can go wrong with with his setup, and, and obviously it gets talked about a lot. He has a real head lean. The bat is sort of right out away from his body, but miraculous almost miraculously everything comes together and at the moment the the ball is released he is like his head is square and his eyes are square and the bat is underneath his eyes and and from there he's able to access parts of the field sure his grip is going to restrict him a little bit but he seems to have that knack that England top order left-handers that have got longevity in their career have by being able to pick the ball to drive down the ground and tuck into the leg side and he's pretty good on the hook shot as well so there's a lot to like about Rory Burns if you can just shut your eyes until the moment the ball's bowled he's actually really pleasurable to watch <laughs> pretty similar to Steve Smith and Marnus very, very much actually very much uh, so. unless they're leaving the ball and then you, you need to cover your eyes again <laughs> yeah but let's not go into that 
Um, yeah, look, I'm really, really pleased for him. What I actually liked, and I'll pick up on a point that uh, Raj made about Conway going through the gears. I think uh, we'll come on to that, I'm sure, with England's performance. But um, I, I liked Burns when he went a little bit ballistic towards the end, when he was running out of partners. He showed that you know he'd got another gear to his game, which Sibley just doesn't seem to have. Um, and I think... Um, going to Australia, you're going to need that ability to to change the pace and the, and the way that you bat, which Conway did so well. Burns um, showed he'd got the, the ability to do. Um, but look, certainly a lot of worries for, for England um, from this uh, from this performance. Oh, I mean, that batting looked, aside from Burns, it looked as fragile as we thought it was going to look, didn't it? I mean, you know, all, all the guys really, I mean, obviously Root is, looks assured when he's out there, but everyone else looked... I don't know. They just didn't, you know, they looked inexperienced. It's, it's almost as simple as that. They looked like a, a group of guys that just don't have the runs on the board and, and are mm. still finding their feet at test level, which is obviously not what you want going into a big series against India, which has got their own skilled pace attack and, and then leading towards the Ashes. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a little bit concerning for England that of those four guys that they've kind of invested a lot in, in Crawley, Pope, Dan Lawrence and, and also Dom Sibley, that none of them have nailed down their place in the side. They're all tremendous. They've all got tremendous potential, um, all of those guys, and, and a lot of them have got good first-class records and have scored runs coming into the England setup. but none of them have really established a spot in the side by by showing good judgment. I think that, that the criticism of those guys is when they get out, they get out playing pretty poor shots. I mean, you have a look at some of those shots in the first innings, driving wide of off stump to a guy that's swinging the ball away from you. Like, you should be able to judge better than that if you're going to nail down your spot at test level. And it's very easy to be critical of that split-second decision-making. But those guys, if they're going to set standards for themselves to be at that level, they're going to have to improve their judgment and their decision-making outside off stump, I think, because that's really what's letting them down at the moment. That um, that Dan Lawrence one especially, I woke up last night in a cold sweat thinking about <laughs> that that drive. Just the the front uh, front elbow collapsed, all all wafty. bottom hand, yeah, it's very like two wafty. feet outside off mm. off stump. I think what I'm a bit concerned about with the English batting is I don't know if they have the technique to play everywhere in the world right now. You've got the you've got the way that they're getting out wafting outside off stump. Bracey, I'm willing to give him uh, the benefit of the doubt. For the you know for for this game, but I really didn't like the way that Tim Southey got him out in the first innings, uh, with that with just going through the gate there when the ball swinging straight out of the hand, uh, but yeah I think that apart from Burns, Root and Stokes, I think that there are some big holes at the moment in this English order, which which are, I think that there's the depth to fill, it's just how they fill them I'm mm. not sure. Yeah, so the the biggest concern for me is that we've been, uh, and certainly I've been talking about this for the last year or 18 months, these guys have now played enough test matches to be getting better. Um, you know, I think Ollie Pope and, um, yeah, Ollie Pope and Zach Crawley and Dom Sibley, they've all played now more than a dozen test matches. And I think um, Pope and uh, Sibley approaching probably 20 games. You need to start to see performances improving and shot selection improving. Um, we'll talk, I'm sure, about James Bracey. Look, he's on debut. He gets one through the gate. Um, you can probably, you know, forgive him that. Um, probably wouldn't have wanted to be batting at seven. He'd have wanted to be coming in a little bit higher in the order. That's what he does for his county as well. Um, had a real struggle with the gloves. Um, I don't think they're going to change things up for Edgebaston, but 
for me, he just looked a long way short of being a test match uh, keeper. Watling had, you know, his struggles as well in this game, missed the stumping and the ball certainly was wobbling a little bit after it had passed the, the batter. Um, but yeah, really felt for Bracey because he just didn't look up to uh, yeah up to it with the gloves either. The the what I guess is is, is a concern. And what when I was watching, I actually managed to watch most of that second innings live. Was the way that Ollie Robinson came in and played after those guys? Yeah, where he was just playing simple cricket. If it was straight, keep it out, get the ball away when you can, and he he batted for a hundred balls. The scores are relevant. He batted for a hundred balls, but he got forty two. But mm. the he batted for a hundred balls. I thought that was that 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 is a telling tale. Yeah. And when your number eight can exercise good judgment like that and your top six can't, it is a little bit concerning. One thing, um, I, I will probably move to, to Ollie Robinson now because I guess he was a, a highlight and a low light almost for, for England in, in that uh, test match. But I, I, I was very surprised with the, the captaincy from New Zealand when Ollie Robinson came in. I, was, I really was sitting there shouting at my TV, get Wagner on, get Wagner on. I don't know why de Gronholm bowled for so many overs at Ollie Robinson. I, I know he's kind of doing his role and he was swinging the ball a long way he was almost swinging it too much because you're just not going to pick up edges with the way he swings it and and so early on in the piece he looked a lot more threatening to the actual batsman whereas someone like Robinson he he just looked like okay Robinson knows knows what he's doing here he's just like you said playing straight down the line and I think Wagner he came in a bit later and and looked okay against Wagner but you know I think if we'd have got Wagner on early on just to rough Robinson up, just to make it challenging for him, just to be at him the whole time. Mm. It might have, you know, you know, maybe it doesn't make any difference, but I would have liked to have seen that. Yeah, I, I guess that the the Wagner conversation, um, it wasn't really a pitch that was conducive to to bowling the kind of length and the modus operandi that he has employed so successfully for the last uh, several seasons. And I think highlighted by the fact that in the second dig, he actually came in and tried to pitch it up and actually found a little bit of swing as well. Mm. Um, kind of actually d- didn't bowl a very Wagner-esque um, spell and and had some success. So I think showing that, you know, he's probably put in those hard yards, even though um, he's got a few more tools in, in, in the, yeah, in the toolkit. But yeah, it was puzzling that they just kind of almost... Uh, meandered through that period and, and, and let Robinson sort of get in and um, ultimately, you know, let England sort of back into the game to the extent where they used up a little bit of time, which, you know, could have been, yeah, could have been crucial as we went through the match. A big shout out for me to Mr. Wood. I think on the second morning he came in and he showed, just as you were talking about, what length that you should be bowling. That express pace, just bowling that hard, short of a length, mm. it caused it caused New Zealanders a lot of problems. And and that that's where that's where the wickets were going to be taken. There's a stat that that's the fastest ever mm. spell by an England bowler since they started mapping the the, the speed gun. So it that is rapid, you know, wasn't it? 13, 14 years I think they've they've been uh, mapping those. So yeah, uh, sort of in the early uh, early to mid nineties, which is pretty rapido over that uh, mm. that length of that length of spell. Look, I, let's let's go to Robinson's on-field stuff to start with because I actually thought he did a tremendous job. I mean, the, the wickets will will suggest that. I When I was watching him, I kind of thought he feels like, I know he's not as quick as him, but he feels like a very natural successor to Stuart Broad in that he runs in and just bowls. He's, he's your kind of seam bowler that can run in, hit your lengths, be at you all the time. And, and, and you know, I just mentioned that about Wagner. He... What, I guess what I meant there, not necessarily just roughing him up and bowling bounces, but someone that you always just have to be playing. Mm. Someone that's at your body, at your stumps, at your... And Robinson felt like that all the time. It, 
you know, there was a few stray balls. Almost when he was trying to swing it, it seemed to be more difficult for him to control. But when he was just running in and hitting those lengths, he was very challenging to face. And yeah, you know, we'll see what happens with all this off-field stuff. But I I think he's got a a big future there for someone that can be very useful in a number of different conditions, as as that point that you made there, Raj. And, And I think what accentuates that is that he actually bowls with a plan. Like he came in there and he can he can execute that. So for example, the one is Carl Jameson, where he just bowled short, put somebody out at deep square leg and bowled short, and Jameson just got one Obliged. away. Well, he got one away first, yeah. and then he just had it straight down yeah. his throat. But but that's a plan, and he, he can go. Then that's not what he was doing, but that's not how he got the rest of his wickets. Mm. So he he bowled to a plan, and you're right around the world that's going to serve him well. Yeah, for, for me, he bowled better as the Test match went on as well. Obviously, a little bit of nerves early doors. Probably strived a little bit and, and got a little bit full, I think, in his first couple of spells. But then, yeah, I think second or third spell um, in that New Zealand first innings, he mm. w- he went, oh, it was a, a fantastic little period and was easily England's best bowler on that um, that afternoon. And then second dig, I thought he bowled really well. Um, yeah, particularly given um, the off-field incidents that, um, you know, I've got to have played on his mind a little bit through the course of the, the test match. Do we want to talk a little bit about that? We can't really gloss over, but um, been announced in the aftermath of the game um, after his um, hastily convened press statement at the end of day one when these uh, comments came to light. Um, He's now been banned whilst they go through an investigation or or an inquiry. So um, certainly going to miss the Edgebaston test match and um, potentially a bit more of the summer um, as well. No detail on what, what that exactly looks like, but yeah, what are our... What are our thoughts around the table on on this? Well, I think given that England wore shirts at the start of the Test match, making a public statement of trying to stamp out racism, that's a line that they must follow. And so the ban is commensurate with that line of we do not allow or condone racism in sport. Obviously what he said um, on Twitter or is alleged to have said on Twitter was a long, long time ago when he was a much younger man. And I'm sure that now he would look back on that and said, well, that was a really dumb thing for me to say and I regret it terribly. And I think the thing that will work in his favour potentially in terms of being able to rehabilitate and continue playing cricket for England and his county is that that was so long ago and that he was very young then and he will be able to show, hopefully, that 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 is not who he is as a person. Um, I would be very surprised if he shares those views now um, publicly or privately, uh, that he did when he was a 17, 18-year-old on Twitter. So I think he's going to have to wear some punishment for what he said uh, because it's not acceptable to say those kinds of things in this day and age, and it's certainly some of what he said. But, you know, I haven't read all of it, but I would say that some of what he said was you know, not acceptable then either. Um, so he's going to have to wear that. England have done the right thing in saying, well, we're going to stand him down while we figure out and that's bought them some time to figure out what the best punishment is for the young man. Um, and then we'll see what happens from there. Well, I think to me, it's it's not what you said there. The, the unanswerable question here for me is, you know, you talk about how it was a long time ago, but the unanswerable question from for us on the outside is, you know, the ECB needs to decide, is he someone who now we feel very strongly that can represent us at, as, as an England cricket player? Mm-hmm. If they feel that, and they can say, well, look, this is a really dumb thing you did. We've now made it very clear to you that that was the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. They can all move on and, and you know, everyone, he's, he can come out, say sorry, he can do his, you know, do his time or whatever they're going to make, mm. uh, whatever comes down from, from this punishment or ban or whatever it is. But, you know, England cricket needs to find out 
whether he's someone they feel confident that can be a role model for young kids and can be someone that can stand up and represent them all across the world. Yeah, and look, I think that they're going to need to do that relatively quickly if they want to get the answers out and, and not let this sort of take over the rest of the summer from a media perspective. It's really, really well documented that he had his troubles. He's on, I think, his third county now. Um, he was actually uh, pretty much sacked by Yorkshire. Uh, Jason Gillespie, coach at the time, and Jason Gillespie, known to be a very, very good man manager and someone that um, likes to sort of polish a little bit of a rough diamond in in a um, in a side. But he couldn't work with Ollie Robinson and, and basically told him to uh, yeah to grow up and, and bugger off. And um, I, I think he has sort of matured and. I think England have been looking at him for a little while. They've had him in and around this bubble um, that they talk about, or sorry, safe, controlled environment now, because um, they don't want to use the word bubble, apparently. Um, but, you know, they've had him in that environment for a period of time. And I think they'll have been judging character during that, um, because I think you've got him. And I, I, I think they've said that about James Bracey. They've judged character um, over that period of, uh, of time. Um, yeah, so look, I, I really hope for him, he does get the opportunity to uh, to make amends and, and come back. And uh, look, I'd probably just be saying, let, let's not be too heavy handed on him uh, at this uh, at this stage. Unless, of course, there's other things that we don't yet know about that, that come out in the ensuing investigation. Yeah, for me, the, the, the sort of argument around, you know, this was in the past, the time-based argument that this was quite a long time ago, I, I don't think that that sits... In, in this case, with the main reason being is that those people who are, are vulnerable to these kind of attacks, they've been exposed to it now. The impact has yeah. just happened. Yeah. So it's it's not like you can say you did something eight years ago, it hasn't had the impact, because it has. While I don't think maybe, I don't think that there, there have been far worse things that have been said on Twitter and done in the world than what he did. Uh, it's, it's still going to cause an impact for a lot of people who, who are, are vulnerable to that. I agree. It doesn't undo the no. impact at all. The fact that he said it eight years ago is mitigating, but it doesn't completely undo the impact at all. You're right. Yeah, and we were all much different people you know, now than we were eight years ago. We mm -hmm. can all attest to that. But my thing that I want to sort of look at is how the ECB dealt with it. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, the two things I want to bring up is, is the statement at the end of the day. Uh I think that it came across really disingenuous just because he was, he was handed a statement and he read the statement. He was he did, did what he was told to do, but I think that it came off really disingenuous and, and not heartfelt. I think he would have been better off having a sleep on it and addressing it in the morning, which which is the same issue that we had with New, in Newlands uh, in 2018 when the Australians had the whole sandpaper gate. Steve Smith went to the press conference and just did not answer the question satisfactorily. Uh, same same issue there. I felt that um, that that Ollie Robinson was kind of set up to fail there a little bit. The second thing is how when when we're going through this whole you know unity movement, do you think that this should have been missed? Could this have been picked up earlier? Is there something that that we've missed here? It depends how many tweets he's sent, right? I mean, going back eight years in someone's Twitter timeline is. I don't. I mean, I don't know who's who's come up with this to to start with, but I feel like it's a it's certainly a long way to be going back on someone's social media. It, it like you said, it, absolutely no one on this podcast is going to condone racism, sexism, you know, discrimination and of we any don't. kind, and we don't absolutely not. And but you know, the fact that it it goes back that long, I don't know. I mean, do you think everyone in in the ECB should should they have gone back? Like, is is that even something that 
the media manager should do. Yeah, so so I guess there's a number of uh, companies and organisations that do social media vetting of employees, um, and we'll go back varying uh, timelines, but um, typically it's five or ten years. So depending on what um, they, you know, that their policy might have been if they'd have had that, may or may not have picked up those comments if they'd not, you know, not gone back. Um, that the eight years yeah. and I only looked at five years. So um, I, I certainly think they'll be looking at their policy when they're picking um, touring squads um, and, and, and picking um, sides again. It's going to certainly have a review of those pre-employment policies. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's really difficult to know what, you know, what the, the best approach for the ECB uh, would be. The other interesting thing, which I don't know if we, we want to go into here, is cricket is a multi-day, multi-day format. When this came out, I was surprised that he, it sounds weird to say, but I was surprised that he kept playing in the test match. It's almost like we've seen that that's happened. This is really contravenes exactly what our values are as England cricketers or England cricket, but we're still going to allow him to represent us for the next four days. So I I was surprised. I, I, I don't know. It's a challenging one. I feel like it's 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 a really hard one for us to answer here. It, you know, sitting here on this podcast, you know, a million miles away from from England, a million miles away from that inner sanctum. I I just don't know how you can make those decisions because to, to I mean for me to it's it's all around that character stuff and you know I, obviously there has to be some sort of uh, punishment or, or repercussions for for doing something like that in your past. You're now a, a public figure mm. like you said there are things that you have an impact no matter when you did them in your life when they come to to four but you know it, it is he is he someone that you want to represent uh, your your country if if they feel that he is now then yeah i, th- I think you can still move on we We'll wrap that segment up here because I, I don't think we're going to get to the bottom of, uh, bottom of it on the pod uh, tonight. I certainly think there's going to be more that comes out. So this investigation, I think, will take place pretty rapidly um, from an ECB perspective because I agree with Raj. I think from a media perspective, um, I, you know, I think with the right intentions, they probably wanted to, you know, in media parlance, get out in front of it. Um, and the reality is that it was a bit of a hash with that um, extremely verbose um, statement that he was... Um, made to read and, and I think it would have been better if he'd have uh, yeah, come from the heart um, either then or you know later um, in the game we've also got some other social media comments to talk about David Lloyd um, who's um, been prevalent on um, Twitter in days gone by um, you've got the quote there Lippy but the, the sort of referred to it as one of the worst test matches he's seen or something like that yeah he said quite one of the worst world's worst test matches I've ever seen and I've seen a lot and I sort of had to check myself for a minute there because I actually, I mean, we've just talked about all the things we liked about the game. I, I, I think the weather's played the the role, right? And I mean, I guess this can probably lead on to a conversation for us. I mean, argue with me, of course, if if anyone disagrees and oh, thinks it, and thinks it was a it was a, a really dull, boring test. But I feel like you know the the conversation that this leads to is you know should England have chased that down and a, a bit harder and. You know, I, I I must admit I was talking at the start of the day to a bunch of people yesterday and and thinking that New Zealand wouldn't actually go as hard as they did in that morning. I was very surprised when Ross Taylor started, you know, pulling out that slog sweep off every single ball. I I have to admit I enjoyed it a lot when he did connect with one. It was sort of brought back those days when he was uh, doing that all the time in the the one day stuff for New Zealand. But yeah, I, I mean, 
you, do you think England should have pushed harder for that and made it kind of the exciting test, the the kind of um, Brisbane test and, and all those kind of games that we've seen in recent years? They've got nothing to lose England by going for it. They're going to lose a test match that has really no meaning in terms of the World Test Championship or in terms of the you know the, the makeup of their summer. They, they will have an opportunity against India in that five-test series to try and win a test match by chasing a title. I feel like you've got nothing to lose in a test like that by not going for the win. Okay, New Zealand might have bloodied their nose a little bit and some of those guys that are in that middle order might have snicked off chasing, chasing a, a total. But if that's the team instruction and they go out chasing a total and they snick off by driving at a ball or, or playing a rash hook shot in the, in the pursuit of a win, for me as a coach, that's okay. Um, by not going for the win, they really didn't give themselves, other than a little bit of batting practice, much to gain from, from, that, from that test match. So for me, I would say, and I like to win, and I don't go out to play for a draw, I would go, yeah, let's go for it. Let's see if we can chase it down. And if we get to 100 for, th- 100 for four off 20 overs and we then have to shut it down, well, then we try and then we try and do that. But I would I would have expected England to go a little bit harder for mine. And just, just to back that up, I, I'm very much with the uh, save the test match first. So make sure you're not going to lose it. But And, and we know that... The, watching the IPL, they could score 100 runs and 10 overs, 12 overs if they needed to at the end. And Joe Root sort of tried to get that going at the end of that partnership with Sibley, but uh, it wasn't to be. So you think they should have gone for it, is what you're saying? I think that they they should have tried to save the game first. And if and if they and could then, save the game, then go for then it? Then go for it at the end, because we can chase those runs down at the end. Mm, okay. Yeah, no, for, for me, I, I think it's a crock of shit to anyone that's sitting outside of um, outside of either the England or New Zealand dressing room um, to say, oh, we would have gone from or you should have gone from this. This happens every time there's this sort of declaration in Test cricket and will continue to happen. For me, Joe Root's not lost a series as England captain at home. Um, he had a real risk if he'd have gone out gung-ho, early doors, trying to chase down uh, 270 that he goes 1-0 down. Um, who knows what happens in weather or um, in terms of the game at Edgebaston. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's lost a series at home. The second point I'll make is if you look at the run rates in the test match, New Zealand scored at 3.08 in the first innings. England scored at 2.71. New Zealand, even when they were trying to put the foot down, only went at 3.2 in the third innings of the game. England's required rate was 3.9. Let's round that up to 4. Uh, 270 off the 70 overs that they were set. Um, they did exactly what they needed to do, which was to make sure that they couldn't um, lose the game early on. I think there's a problem that Sibley didn't have a gear to be able to get on with it. Um, and and it, then it becomes like some kind of crappy tour match where he's got to give his wicket away to get someone in who can actually put bat to ball. Um, that's an issue. Um, but absolutely, I, I just don't think they were ever going to be at the races. And if you look at the scoring in the test match, forget the run rates. Only three guys in this entire test match actually got in on this wicket. It was tremendously difficult to score on, um, as the scoring rates would suggest. So look, absolutely, you're never chasing 270 off 70. So why even bother? Yeah, I mean, just to back your point up, I'll jump on your side now, Banksy. Uh, This is one of those innings where it could pay off later in the test. Maybe in the second test match, they've batted themselves into a little bit of form. They've kept the New Zealand bowlers out there, having bowled, what, 50 overs apiece? 40 overs apiece? 40 40 plus overs apiece? So there's no reason it couldn't pay off in the future. 
That that's probably a good segue to you know what would we do in this second test? Are, are there changes? Because I mean you mentioned that the bowling workloads there, Raj. We've seen uh, yeah I think Southie, Jameson and Wagner I think all bowled around forty overs in the test. We you know we mentioned at the start of this kind of tour we were saying oh well there's three tests in really quick succession. Are they going to rotate the bowlers? There's now talk that Trent Bolt has come out of quarantine three or four days early because of the the COVID situation there and. His quarantine's been relaxed a little bit. It's now sounding like he might play in this in this second test. Well, it's sounding probable. Yeah, it's sounding, yeah. Whereas a week ago, Gary Stead was kind of saying, oh, look, it's pretty unlikely he's going to be coming straight from quarantine and it's not really going to be giving him enough time. It sort of sounded like he didn't think he'd, he really had enough time. Trent Bolt himself didn't think he had enough time. And yeah, it, then now they're, they're left with an opportunity where they can go, okay, do we want to rest one of those guys? You know, Southie bowled really great. Do we want to make sure we keep him nice and fresh for, for that World Test Championship final? Or, you know, do we want to actually go with our balance and, and only have one of those all-rounders? So I think there are a few questions in, in the New Zealand squad. And, and obviously Robinson's, you know, standing down from, from this test means there's a spot opening for, for them in this game. Yeah, so, so let me frame the question for you guys. So from a Kiwi perspective, changes for the second test at Edgebuston. And how does that lead into the World Test Championship for you guys? What what are you you know what are you doing in terms of the selection for this game? Because realistically, you're you're going into this game now really with half an eye on that World Test Championship uh, final uh, workloads are going to come into it, etc. What would you be doing if you were in Gary Stead's shoes right now? So for me, I'm not a massive fan of the whole rest and, and rotation sort of policy i think we've only got these three tests and then we've got a bit of a break till the world 2020 don't we uh no we've got a few other tours coming up um yeah there's some tours to to the subcontinent bangladesh and and pakistan but yeah not a lot of test cricket so i i think yeah i think based on that i think that yeah there probably is the the ability to give somebody a rest whether that is probably not wagner probably not jameson it's probably tim southey if there's going to be anybody uh and then i'm going to throw a little bit of a, a carrot out there Maybe have a look at someone like Rachin Ravindra, batting down the order a little bit as, as a spinning option as well, uh, batting in a six or seven position. Uh, I think that de Gronholm, in my opinion, now has to stay. He adds a lot with the ball, uh, and hopefully he can he can sort the batting out in the next game. But, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, you, you bring Bolton, you give probably Tim Southey a rest, and, and you're looking at maybe a, a Ravindra or somebody exciting down the order there who can bowl as well. I think the trouble that they've had by not giving Ravindra this first test is that, to me, Santner actually looked okay when he bowled, and, and you know he's actually um, got a little bit of an injury himself, his finger. But I think that they, it feels to me like they'd be unlikely to go with Ravindra for the World Test Championship final. So to me, you want to get Santner, if you are going to go with Santner, and reading the tea leaves, they just keep talking about the balance of the side and having a spinner, and that almost makes me think that de Gronholm's going to be the one that misses out, and Santner is going to be the one in that World Test Championship final that bats seven, and we're going to go with those four seamers, because as much as de Gronholm's bowling does fit the English conditions, he there's just no real spot for him if you're going to play a spinner in the side, and you know having... I, I tend to agree with you. I would love to see Ravindra. This feels like the opportunity to give him a go. It feels it, you know, it felt like an opportunity to give Matt Henry a go in, in this game, in, in this test. But yeah, I, I just feel like they will actually stick with Santner because they want to get those overs in him if he's going to play some sort of role in that in that. 
You're 100% right. Uh, Stead has been talking about needing a spinner in the long format. He said, we need that balance. The reason I want Colin de Grandhomme in there is I feel like he's a little bit of kryptonite for Joe Root. In the World Cup final, he nicked him off. I don't know if you saw the early part of, of the innings. There was, he was walking down, he was playing and missing. Mm. He, he bowls something that, that Joe, Wright, Joe Root doesn't like. And if we can get Joe Root cheaply, we go a long way to winning the game. I'm going to throw to Bordy for the neutral view on what New Zealand should do coming into this uh, test. But I'll just make one quick point on de Granholm. If you've got um, Bolt, Wagner, um, Saudi and Jameson... You don't need a fifth seamer like in England. If four four guys of that quality can't do the job on the wickets in England, then you've got a real, real problem. So then it comes down to that sort of batting balance and whether he's a better option than Mitchell um, or whether you've got to you know use Santa to balance that side. But Bordy, what would you do from, a, I guess, the outside the camp leading into that World Test Championship final as well? New Zealand have got a real quandary because they've got four fast bowlers who are so good they're almost impossible to leave out. But my view is if you're going to take a spinner, you should take the spinner that's giving you the best chance of winning a test match. And for me, that's AJ's Patel. It's by far and away their best spinner. And so if you're going to take a spinner, I would be going, well, we kind of almost have to take AJ's. The reason they can't is because of that batting balance, and that's where Mitchell Santner becomes more valuable. He, if he plays instead of Colin de Gronholm, he's going to have to bat at seven. And that almost feels, for me, a bit like Kyle Jamison. It's half a spot too high for him, in my view. Um, so unless unless he shows some real application in this second test, and that's what I would be looking for from Santner, he's got to face 70, 80, 100 balls batting at seven or eight if he's going to be the guy for New Zealand who bats with one of the established members of the top six to get them big runs. Because otherwise... I feel like AJS Patel gives you so much more as as a bowler in terms of being able to attack while your other guy like Wagner is at you and at you and at you from the other end. So for me, if I think if this was the Australian side, they would pick AJS and figure out the batting. I feel like that's what that's what an Australian side would do. But having said that, I think the New Zealand play their cricket so perfectly balanced. They've got such a balanced side with an all-rounder at seven that I think they will go with Santa and I don't think they lose out too much. Uh, on the England front, we're going to see the same batting lineup you would suggest. Uh, and then just just my only thought there really is because they're just going to want to see, give those guys another opportunity. It feels a bit harsh to kind of bring them in to the setup and then drop them straight away. Maybe you guys disagree there. But bowling-wise, they're obviously going to have to make a change with Robinson. Are they going to rotate one of Broad and Anderson out? What do, what do you guys think there? Look, it's really difficult to know what England are going to do because um, I think in the winter, uh, the English winter, they made some decisions based on a spreadsheet somewhere um, sure. as to who was going to have a rest at what particular point. Um, so, look, I, I really don't want to second-guess what they're going to do. What I would do, and I think what the, the tea leaves from this game uh, tell me, is that... Um, Mark Wood bowled a lot of overs in the first innings and I think, you know, rightly so um, New Zealand put nearly 400 on the board and they needed that extra firepower didn't bowl a lot in the second innings, only bowled 7 overs um, so was that wrapping him a little bit of cotton wool and seeing whether he can go back to back? I probably think not um, I think Ollie Stone might get a go um, uh, Edge Baston um, and then I think obviously Robinson drops out of the side, um, so he, he won't be playing at Edge Baston. So for me, natural opportunity to have a look at Craig Overton and see uh, whether or not he, um, you know, is the you know is the other option for them at that um, number eight um, perspective. And I think both Anderson and Broad would want to go again. Um, I think that they're bowlers that suit Miles in the legs. Um, 
And I think, you know, Jimmy Anderson said, why can't I play seven tests in the summer? That's the only cricket I'm going to play until November. Um, if I'm fit and I'm, you know, in rhythm, I want to be bowling. Um, I don't think he will play seven. I think even he's realistic enough to know that he'll miss a game at some point. Um, but look, I think that they will probably go again. And from a batting perspective, they just don't have a lot of options um, unless they're going to bring someone in from, you know, a little bit of a bolter from outside of the squad. Um, Burns did all right. Sibley got uh, runs in the second inning, so I can't see a place in for Hamid unless they drop Crawley and, 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 and change the makeup of that top um, top three. Um, yeah, and look, you know, they're kind of stuck a little bit with Bracey, I think, now um, in that, uh, that keeping spot as well. So, I yeah, I don't foresee too many changes. So on the priority list for um, test matches for this England summer, including the Ashes, this next test probably sits right at the bottom for them. Question, but but my follow-up point is, Anderson also said something like if he ends up bowling almost 50 overs a game, he'll see, he, he understands that he'll probably have to rest. And he bowled 42 overs or something near this game. So do, do, you, do you see, well, why do they have to play? Broad and Anderson, I know they want to play, and they're you know they're Test match specialists, but they've just bowled a heavy workload, and it's a short back to back, and and they're not um, spring chickens anymore. Yeah, look, they're not, but you know Anderson's record over the last two years is pretty good, and, and and shown that he can back up and play multiple Test matches. And there's a gap obviously in between um, this Test match and England taking on India. I don't expect Jimmy Anderson's going to go back and play for Lancashire in that period of time. Um, so you know he's going to be out for you know three. Uh, three weeks or so if he doesn't play in this game so look I think he plays he's only played two games for Lanks as well because he, he did have a little bit of a niggle early doors so you know he said he'd have probably wanted one more game um, coming into this uh, this England side um, so look, I, I don't think you know I don't think they should make the change because I think you can make the change to rest someone at the point that they need a rest and at this stage I don't think that they do I think Mark Wood probably does because um, he's shown over the last three or four years uh, when he plays two test matches, he normally misses six months afterwards. So, um, you know, I think they'll probably also want to have a look at Ollie Stone, to your point. Um, they want to really see who's going to feature in that Ashes and maybe in that India series as, as that seamer before Joffre Archer um, and Mark Wood, um, you know, are back and firing. I actually thought that um, uh, James Anderson and Stuart Broad actually bowled really well on that first morning. They bowled really good areas, and you saw on the pitch maps how it changed throughout the day, but that first session was full and, and trying to get the ball to swing. They just unfortunately didn't get the wickets for England. So just a side note, what, what kind of conditions are we expecting at Edgebaston? Well, yeah, my mum and dad still live in Birmingham and it's wet as an otter's pocket, I think, as they would say. So, um, look, I, I think it's going to suit uh, the seamers. Um, so, again, you might see a situation where neither side plays their frontline uh, front spinner. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we might see more of the same for, uh, for this game. Bordy, what do you think? You're kind of one eye on the ashes. Who do you want to be, um, I guess, bowling half volleys at David Warner at Brisbane come uh, come November, December? Well, I don't want Stuart Broad bowling at David Warner at all. So if we could possibly avoid a situation where, where Stuart Broad bowls at David Warner, that would be ideal for me. I, I think England will try Overton. I think they will try Stone. I think they've got a real problem there at, at number eight at the moment without Chris Wokes in the picture. So I think they're looking for an answer there. And I think uh, Chris Overton, uh, Craig Overton, sorry, will get a go. Um, and Ollie Stone looks like he'll come in naturally to replace Mark Wood if they need to have a kind of like-for-like replacement there. So that'll be interesting. I don't think they'll tinker too much with Anderson and Broad, though. If they're going to rest somebody in preparation for the India test, you would think it would be one of those two, maybe Stuart Broad. But... 
I, I think you roll with them until they need a rest. I, I really think that they'll get a rest at the end, in the Indian Test Series at some point, one of them and then the other. Um, whether that's in Test 3 and 4 or 2 and 3, I'm not sure. Um, I, I, would, I would still roll with them. Yeah. Um, against New Zealand. I'd give them an opportunity to have a real good tune-up before that India series by playing in this next test match. Cool. Predictions for Edgebaston, guys? What do we uh, What do we see coming? Who wants, to, who wants to go first? Raj, you're leaning in with intent. Yeah, um, I, I think that if Stuart Broad and uh, Jimmy Anderson play, I feel like you're 100% right in, in saying that they need, they're probably a game short of where they wanted to be, and I would be very wary of them uh, in this next test match coming up. I still think saying that, New Zealand's going to win. Uh, it'd be great to see Trent Bolt back. I'd love him to have a bowl before um, the India series and hopefully he can he can swing this game in our favour. So, uh, yeah, win to New Zealand, Conway 100. Yeah, look, I, I said 2-0 at the start of the series. Obviously, uh, I'm going to say that the weather cost, cost us uh, this first win. Um, so I'm going to stick with New Zealand here. I would like to see probably a lot a, a bit more out of Ross Taylor. I'd love to see Ross Taylor kind of play an assured innings, play get a 50, look really comfortable at the crease, and I'd like to see a bit more out of Kane Williamson just to kind of get get him back in the groove and, and you're really primed for that World Test Championship final. But, yeah, I have to stick with New Zealand. I think I had 1-0. I'm going to stick with 1-0. <laughs> and who's it 1-0 to? I think New Zealand win the second test. I, I, I think that they've shown me enough that if Kane Williamson doesn't miss out four times, he's missed out twice. If he doesn't miss out four times, I think New Zealand go a long way towards winning that, that second test. Cool. And I think it's nil-nil because um, I think uh, the weather probably beats us again. Um, so, yeah, I think we see uh, nil-nil and then we go straight to the Super Warrior and then came back on boundaries afterwards. Right, New Zealand's ahead on the boundary count this this game, I think. I think I saw that. So, yeah, strong, strong thanks, there. Neil, thanks, Neil Wagner. <laughs> Well, that just about wraps up this episode of the Top Order podcast. If you are seeking an additional cricketing fix, please do dip back into the recent back catalogue. We spoke with Ken Rutherford, uh, former New Zealand captain, told a few amazing yarns on a recent interview. Urge you to go and have a listen to that. We've also got plenty more news, views and interviews, as well as some collaboration with a couple of podcasts previewing the World Test Championship uh, final. We'll give you details of that in all the social feeds coming up as well. But until next week, when we're going to dissect the England-New Zealand second game at Edgebaston. It's good night and God bless from us all here at the Top Order Podcast. Good night.